Hello and a warm welcome as you join us here on Search for Truth. If you were with us last time, you'll remember our theme is the character of Christ. And we'll enjoy concentrating our thoughts on his lovely character for another nine talks in this 10-week series. Today's study focuses on the obedience of Christ. We acknowledge that uh, any study of Christ's character is a vast undertaking and Brian can only hope to bring out some significant teachings from Scripture. After all, the Gospel of John tells us that there are many other things Jesus did which, if written down, the whole world could not contain the number of books. So, anyway, here's Brian. Thanks, John. The broader context of the whole of 2 Corinthians is concerned with the character of Christ. The reason being that Paul was defending his lifestyle as an apostle of Christ by appealing to it. When we come specifically to chapter 10, we find that the person of Christ and the quality of obedience are mentioned together. In that immediate context, Paul's grammar permits us to talk not only of obedience, but to take Christ as its subject. But before coming back to explore that in more detail, let's step back and try to appreciate how in this letter, the second in our Bible that Paul wrote to Corinth, Paul is attempting to authenticate his lifestyle and ministry by appealing to the character of Christ and his experience when he was on earth. Sufferings, which Paul refers to in the very first chapter, made him feel as though he had received the sentence of death and had forced him to rely on God who raises the dead. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God encourages Paul, and Paul also encourages the Christian believers. Paul is laying his experiences as a servant of Christ alongside those of his master, alongside those of Christ himself. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul expands on that to suggest that he suffered in his ministry to show that the transcendent power belongs to God, and not to himself. He looks upon his suffering as carrying the dying of Jesus in his body, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Paul is confident enough to cope with his suffering, and even the threat of death, because he's confident that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock on which Paul's ministry is built. The guiding or controlling example for Paul's ministry is the suffering, death and resurrection of Christ. He continually refers back to it in defending his ministry because part of the criticism of his ministry has been to doubt Christ is speaking in and through him. This leads to the request for proof that Christ is speaking in Paul, 2 Corinthians 13. The Corinthians understand that the minister in whom Christ speaks is the one to whom they should pay attention. We should expect then that Paul would explain and defend his ministry in terms of demonstrating how it's rooted in Christ. Both Paul and his opponents have claimed to speak for Christ and part of the purpose of 2 Corinthians is to settle the validity of those claims. Paul, on several occasions in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13, validates the weakness of his ministry by appeal to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, he argues that his status as a servant of Christ is best established 
by pointing to his persecutions, sufferings and hardships. In 2 Corinthians 12, he suggests that his weakness supplies the very opportunity for Christ's power to rest on him. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 13, he points out that his own weakness in dealing with the Corinthians parallels that of Christ, who was crucified out of weakness, but lives out of the power of God. In other words, Paul responds to his critics in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13 by arguing that if he is weak, it only confirms that his ministry is authentically Christian. But let's come back to the 10th chapter and the verse which talks about obedience. And that mentioned now, as we've seen, being in the overall context of Paul presenting something of the character of Christ to the Corinthians, doing all this, as we say, with an eye to his critics. From verse 3 in chapter 10 we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In these verses that we've read, Paul intends to contrast his own ministry, which is characterised by both the character of Christ and a God-given ability to wage war, with the ministry of his opponents. He's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of his opponents. That ministry of his opponents is characterised by bold and boastful comparisons. Paul's opponents don't believe that the goal of their ministries is to take their own thoughts captive to Christ's obedience, that is, to Christ's obedient submission to God's will, even to the point of suffering and death. I suggest it's important that we do see this verse as referring to Christ's own actual obedience, and recall that in the wider context this has been fully sketched for us in terms of Christ's obedience to the will of God that for him involved enduring submission to the death of the cross. In the verses we've read, there's been the use of military terms, suggesting Paul is borrowing from the imagery of siege warfare. When a city was besieged, First, the outer defences were destroyed, then the defenders were taken captive, and finally the victorious army stood ready to punish any continuing rebellion. With the reading understood as being Christ's obedience, the idea would be that it is Christ who conquers, but not, of course, in any brutal way as in normal ancient warfare. The paradoxical nature of his victory is seen here, if in Christ weakness is strength, if suffering can console, and if death leads to life, why shouldn't Christ's obedience make captives of us? What are the strongholds that our divinely empowered weapons destroy? Paul's use of this word recalls the ancient practice of building a massively fortified tower inside the walls of a city where its citizens might retreat to make their final defence. But to what does Paul's language actually refer? First, they are arguments or speculations designed to justify a person's disbelief in God. 
He's saying that our weapons to demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures behind which they live their lives in rebellion against God. Second, our weapons are effective in bringing down every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We've been graciously equipped by God with the necessary weaponry to overcome every arrogant claim, every proud thought that forms a barrier to the knowledge of God. We are fully empowered to address every argument that's used to rationalise sin and to justify unbelief and to overcome all rationalisations which are the strongholds by which the mind fortifies itself against the gospel. The ultimate aim, of course, is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The picture is of a military expedition into enemy territory, an expedition so effective that every plan of the enemy is thwarted, every scheme foiled, every counter-offensive beaten. Whatever ideas of the unbeliever hindered faith, Whatever notions or plans were barriers to repentance, they are defeated, captured and graciously transformed. I remember this happening in the life of a lady called Kath. She resisted the gospel, raising every intellectual objection. But we kept sharing God's good news, using his word. One night, the Lord opened her heart and she was taken captive. The weapons of our gospel warfare our truth and our righteous lifestyle, proclaiming the gospel as faith in a glorious salvation as well as resting in the word of God and prayer. Contextually, Paul is talking about strongholds in the lives and minds of those in the Corinthian church who were resistant to his apostolic authority. But do ordinary Christians today have them too? Yes, such intellectual Philosophical and moral enemies to the knowledge of God don't automatically disappear when we get saved. I once heard someone define a stronghold as a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something we know that is contrary to God's will. Perhaps, especially in its original context, demolishing strongholds refers to overcoming wrong ideas about Christ. The secret of the strength of these strongholds lies in two things. Human pride, that is, pride as independence from God. And second, this is expressed through clever arguments and plausible reasonings that make the action based on pride sound like the logical thing to do. The reasonings or imaginations, as we saw, are treated as forts or citadels to be conquered. The gospel is the proclamation of the word of truth, lived out in a demonstration of love and righteousness through the operation of faithful praying as we witness to our salvation. When the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he declared the gospel, and in that way the Apostle destroyed their arguments, brought low their pride, delivered them and set them free. These are the same weapons by which he now attacks the strongholds still entrenched in Corinth. The gospel undermines arguments by capturing the arguer. It reaches behind the argument to change the person. 
after the work of the gospel, there comes a second step, which is the Christian's own responsibility. In capturing a fortress, after destroying the walls and moving into the centre of the fortress, it's necessary to root out all the remaining pockets of resistance. There'll be enemy soldiers hidden away in the fortress, and they must be found and captured. We can't do the first thing in our own power, for it takes God's power to destroy human pride. But we must do this other thing. We must pursue each vagrant thought and capture it for Christ. The intellectual life is often the last part of a Christian to be yielded to the right of Jesus Christ to rule. For instance, we reserve the right to judge Scripture as to what we will or will not agree with, what we will or will not accept. Many play lustful thoughts and pictures over and over on the video player of the mind, even if not allowing themselves to engage in the immoral acts involved. Others allow jealous thoughts and resentful attitudes to take over, Though they outwardly appear to be friendly and cooperative with people, inwardly they are filled with hostility and resentment against them. How do you allow Christ to capture your thoughts? Well, you do it by refusing to entertain the concepts which Scripture rejects and by resolutely acting on those it approves. So once again I remind you there's a free book to go with this series of talks and a copy of the book can be yours if you write in by post or email. If you'd like a copy just ask for the character of Christ and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon SN48DY UK. Search for Truth, P.O. Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria 3134, Australia. Search for Truth, P.O. Box 70115, Chilomini, Blantyre, Malawi. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So, thanks again for the privilege of your company today. And I'm looking forward to you joining me again next week, if you're able to, when we'll take a look into the quality of meekness in the character of Christ. But until then, it's goodbye for now, and very best wishes from Brian, David, and me, John. So see you again soon, and in the meantime, may God richly bless you. Jesus.